I'll do a review of the Satipatthana Sutta now so that we can uh, possibly have a um, concise remembrance of the most important aspects of it. Remembering is half of the practice, the other half is practice. And what we don't remember, we won't practice. So, the um, basis of the Satipatthana Sutta are the four aspects of ourselves that we can become mindful of. It means being in touch with ourselves. And which one of these four foundations we use depends on the appropriate moment. There are appropriate times when to become aware of the body and other times aware of the mind. Now, in the first instance, the Satipatthana Sutta speaks about the practice of calm or tranquility. Putting one's attention on the breath and being completely absorbed in the breathing process. However, just as that is finished, immediately the Sutta goes to insight. So there's, um, there's a great deal of instruction here connected with insight and only a very brief instruction for calm and tranquility. Later on, of course, when we are concerned with content of mind, we are again brought back to calm and tranquility meditation. However, this sutta has as its focus the various ways we can use insight techniques. This is not to say that we cannot find our own personal triggers for insight or our own personal objects of attention which create insight. But we will, when we examine those personal ones, we will find that they are in some manner or form connected to one of those that are mentioned here. Because the Buddha mentioned everything that is possible to find in a person under the different headings. But we can find our own personal way of approaching those headings. We don't have to slavishly hold on to certain practices. So first we have watching the breath to become calm. I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the body process. I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily process. Which means we sit quietly and tranquil, and as we breathe, some tranquility arises in the body, which will also 
affects the mind, and of course the calm mind again affects the body. They affect each other. However, it immediately goes to the insight which can arise from watching the body. Three ways of gaining insight. One is very familiar to us, namely the impermanence aspect. The arising and ceasing, in this case of breath, the arising and ceasing of the heartbeat, arising and ceasing of any kind of sensation, feel bodily connected. And the second way is to watch the body, to be attentive to the body as an impersonal object without ownership, which helps one greatly to reduce the ego illusion. And as we watch ourselves, we can also watch material aspects outside of ourselves as far as impermanence is concerned, as far as they are not owned, they have no core substance, and also with regard to any movement, if that is available for us to watch. So we have the possibility of watching this body, of other bodies, which can, of course, also include nature. There are many bodies there, such as trees and such like, birds. And we can see the impermanence and we can see that there just is some material object there. And then it talks about the four postures, which means that we become very much aware of walking, sitting, standing, lying down. using our arm movements, eating, drinking, going to the toilet, getting dressed, and so forth. In other words, being attentive to what this body is doing as a body. Now that word, as a body, means that we do not connect with anything else. Not that the mind is telling the body to do it, that's another way of being mindful, but as a body connects only to what the body is doing. And as we watch that, our mindfulness sharpens, and we then do gain some insight in its objective materiality rather than our subjective way of thinking of it as me, And we gain insight into the constancy of impermanence. It's always there. It never fails. And we can gain insight into the fact, eventually, that the body does have to have the mind to give its orders. So these are strictly connected to the body movements and always these three aspects of insight. And then there is 
that particular insight meditation of seeing all the separate parts of oneself. Now I suggested that one opens up one's body and takes out all these separate parts, puts them in front of oneself and looks at them and sees whether there's any me in them. And that the me may possibly arise when one sticks them back inside all nicely put together and in their proper places. And then all of a sudden it's me again. Goes for the parts of the body inside, goes for the parts of the body outside, like um, arms and uh, legs and uh, nails and teeth and hair and so forth. Goes for the skeleton. Any of any of this to gain insight into that totally objective phenomena called me and consisting of a body. Well, that's one way of insight meditation. The um, first one, the one where we watch our movements only becomes inside meditation when we recognize the impermanence, the non-ownership, and also the fact that the mind has to make the, uh, give the orders. This one becomes insight when we see it as parts put together, but not me. The next one are the elements. And with the elements, earth, water, fire, and air, we can find all these within and without. It also becomes insight when we lose some of the separation which separates us from a nature, from other beings, when we see ourselves as the same as everyone else and everything else that has materiality. And it also becomes insight when we lose some of this ownership idea. Its most effective aspect of particularly of the element uh, meditation is possibly the non-separation aspect, that one sees oneself within the framework of everything that has corporality that exists, which excludes space and consciousness, which are sometimes called the fifth and the sixth elements, but here in this sutta they're not mentioned. They're mentioned at other times, other suttas. Here we are strictly concerned with the aspects which are concerning a body, and that's the four primary elements. So the non-separation aspect is probably the strongest for this particular uh, meditation, inside meditation. And then we have those wonderful nine charnel grounds meditation where we can see ourselves dead, but not just nicely dead with a nice calm face waiting for the next rebirth, but seeing ourselves dead and as we would really look 
if some mortician wouldn't come along and paint us up and fix us up nicely, but as we would see a dead person left to its own devices. There would, first of all, the body would bloat, then that would discolor, then it would erupt, all the inside juices come out, come out. then maggots would come and eat it. And uh, this is not supposed to be somebody else. That's supposed to be oneself. And uh, as that has happened eventually, then one sees the bones with some flesh on them, and uh, some then where the flesh has disappeared and no more blood and flesh is to be found, and then just the bones, and they're all spread all over the place, bits and pieces here and there, and uh, eventually it all goes to dust where it belongs. Um, whatever your imagination allows, um, you can uh, look at this. This is designed to reduce our attachment to this body. We are desperately attached to it. We call it me and mine. We worry about it most of the time. We try to give it the best of attention that we can possibly have for it. We try to keep it in the best possible order. And we lament and are grief-stricken if it should have to go to hospital. Even there, we try to get the best that we can find for it. And should it actually come to the point of where it is going to be in that condition, as I've just mentioned, we consider that a tragedy. Since it is a foregone conclusion that all these things are going to happen, we might as well refrain from thinking of it as a tragedy because it's a self-imposed idea that this is a tragedy, and since these things are going to happen, why make it something, some drama out of it? Mm -hmm. Would well, it be correct to say that the IG birth is a terminal illness? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but you know, you could say that birth is a terminal illness too. <laughs> yes because this is aging at start. Yes, that's quite true. <laughs> so, um, we're making a drama out of something which is totally natural and which has arisen out of craving this drama because we wouldn't be here and wouldn't have to deal with all this mess if we hadn't had the craving to be here. So if we can see ourselves truly like that, we're getting a little nearer to the truth. Now this does not concern the, um, an imagination of other people being in that condition. They'll have to do their own thing. It always concerns oneself. And uh, one has to come to the realization within that this is not just a movie that one puts into the mind, but that is the reality of not being here anymore at a certain point in time. And this is what most people find rather revolting, 
that they're not going to be here and they can't um, control the situation any longer, they can't take part in those things that they'd like to take part in. In other words, the whole world disappears, one thing, because oneself is disappearing. This is, of course, not so. The whole world is quite happily carrying on and not even aware of the fact that oneself has disappeared. So we try, sometimes some people try their level best to leave behind a legacy of some sort, maybe a monument or something. Some people have their bodies Yes, dreadful, isn't it? <laughs> yes, well, it's just as uh, uh, absurd as everything else we do. It's no more absurd than everything else we do. I think it's just in the same category. There's a very interesting aspect, actually, in China, which was discovered not so long ago, possibly 10, 12 years ago, or even less, where a Chinese emperor, uh, about um, around the year one, um, had himself buried in a huge underground cave which contained 7,000 clay soldiers, life-size, and completely life-like, which is due to the excellent uh, uh, artistry of the Chinese, with uh, about um, 15,000 war horses and wagons in which they were going to go to war. In other words, he wasn't going to let his empire crumble just because he was going to die. He has gonna, was going to take his soldiers and his horses with him to the next empire he was going to have somewhere, wherever he thought he was going to have it. This is a uh, megalomaniac uh, um, example of trying to make it permanent. Now, obviously, what we get out of it is a beautiful example of artistry of clay soldiers with which 12 were exhibited in uh, Melbourne a few years back, and they were magnificent. Life-like and life-size. And they had some horses, too. So this is a, an extreme example. So are the pyramids and the mummies to be found within the pyramids, all extreme examples of this um, absurd idea of trying to make something permanent, permanent which can under no circumstances ever be permanent. What has arisen must vanish. So if we cannot find it in within us to recognize the impermanence of our breath as exactly that, we must look again. The impermanence of our breath is exactly the um, focal point of the understanding of this transparency and non-solidity of all corporality. Everything that we are has the same aspect as the breath, and the idea of giving these inside meditations on the dead body, our own dead body, is not only to gain a more um, level-headed view and a more um, centered view of ourselves because we're too extreme on our um, um, clinging part to the body and ownership, 
but it also gives us um, a focus for seeing ourselves in the right kind of perspective. We're here for a very short time. And of course, the older we get, the shorter the time gets, so we have to make tracks. But even use is no guarantee for being alive. So the um, ways of looking at it is any which way one has enough imagination to think of oneself in that manner. And if one has seen some dead bodies in this life, it is easier. In the West, unfortunately, we uh, try to hide them and are very successful too in hiding them in the uh, uh, special rooms in the hospitals and then in the mortuaries and uh, so we don't get to see what they really look like. But if anybody has had the good fortune to see a dead body as it looks and as it deteriorates, this will be helpful. Now again, this is another kind of inside meditation, the uh, ways of looking at, the, at one's own dead body. Bodily parts first, then the elements, then the dead body. And these four, the first one was just watching one's movements and seeing the impermanence. These four basically are the um, inside meditations on the body. And then we come to the attention on our feelings. Now we have two, emotion and sensation. And again, we need to see that there are only three kinds of which we're only aware of two, the pleasant and the unpleasant, or as it says here, the painful and the not painful. But I think it's easier to understand when we say pleasant or unpleasant. And that we have those automatically. That in the understanding of cause and effect, we become aware that a feeling arises from all our sense contacts, including thinking. And this is automatic. Sense contacts are automatic. We cannot run around with our eyes closed, our ears uh, covered with uh, cotton wool, and so forth. We have to use our senses. And from them, we do get feelings. But if we learn to observe feeling as feeling without even giving name as perception of what kind of feeling, other than pleasant or painful, or at least stopping ourselves from the rejection or the desire, we will eventually learn the utmost in equanimity. This is the teaching for equanimity. Naturally, we need to also know that we don't own the feelings, we need to watch that too. The arising and ceasing, the non-ownership through the objectivity. And we can always see that our own feelings are duplicated in other human beings.
although feeling is the um, basis for our reactions, the Buddha doesn't say anything more about it except becoming aware of either sensation or emotion as either painful or pleasant, and he also adds neutral, neither painful nor pleasant. When we become a little more mindful, that neutral state will also be apparent. And we will find that we need not react. Because of a neutral feeling, there is no reaction needed. And when we become aware of that, and when we actually notice that, it does facilitate the non-reaction to the painful or pleasant. Because at least we have learned non-reaction. Now, is there any question on that? Because that is again a, a, like a paragraph or part of it. Three kinds of feelings and the learning of the non-reaction through the recognition of its impermanence and the non-ownership. All quite clear, no? Okay. Now, in the, uh, the foundations of mindfulness, when the first one was the body, we have then feeling, mind states, and mind content. So we now come to the mind states. All these are, of course, inside meditations. Every bit of this is all inside meditation. And it can be inside contemplation. It, uh, it can be um, when you're sitting outside somewhere, deliberately aroused to, I'm now going to do this. Naturally, when we sit in meditation, want to be concentrated and feelings arise, it would be a natural um, reaction to become aware of those. But one can deliberately do it outside of the meditation hall, say that I would like to notice feeling and see whether I am reacting and uh, particularly if something has arisen which is not quite clear yet that one can be more attentive to it the mind states now in the mind states the buddha mentions lust or greed hate delusion now <laughs> it's very difficult to notice delusion with a deluded mind it's practically impossible. Delusion, as I've told you, always means the ego delusion. But we can relate to this particular um, insight meditation in a different way when we are uncertain, when somebody else seems to have a totally different view of something. We may question our mind state and see whether it is actually foggy. We can see whether we have um, difficulty clarifying our thoughts. These are deluded states. Huh? Contraction, lack of love, lack of compassion, lack of clarity. The mind feels shrunk together. 
distraction, I don't think I have to explain. Everybody knows what distraction is. So these are mind states which we can become aware of. Exalted and unexalted. Exalted is when the mind has universality in it and uh, sees things from a bird's eye view, to, so to say, rather than being totally caught up in one's own problems and beliefs and viewpoints. <coughs> surpassed and unsurpassed. The, med the meditation states, the states, sorry, of the uh, absorptions are mentioned here as surpassed and unsurpassed. Naturally, if one is in the absorptions, one will know afterwards that one has had mind states which have surpassed the ordinary consciousness. But we can have mind states that surpass ordinary consciousness when we are aware of our compassion and lovingness towards others. We can be aware of realization of a universal law rather than our personal aspects only, so we have those opportunities also. Concentrated and unconcentrated, liberated and unliberated, well, liberated would be meaning to have, uh, have had path and fruit, so we're not quite um, going to notice that, but we're certainly going to notice unliberated. And how do we notice unliberated? when the mind has difficulties. A liberated mind doesn't have any difficulties. So an unliberated mind has difficulties. And when we have a difficulty, it's very helpful to inquire into the difficulty. Not, of course, looking for the outer trigger, but looking for the inner reaction. Why has it arisen? What is its cause? <coughs> and we will find many causes and can name them other than just lust and hate. We can give them other names, whatever is appropriate. So mind states, to recognize mind states, are a very um, important insight meditation. When we get a little more... Um, Objective, we can see mind states as moods. They arise and pass away. And uh, there are certain moods that we have become habituated to and that we therefore consider ours and like to keep, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, doesn't seem to make much difference. People like to keep what they've always had. So even if we are habituated to anxiety, habituated to uh, unhappiness, and I can recognize it quite clearly, it's very often difficult to shift because we are used to it. Well, we need to see that too. That such mind states are not conducive to peace and happiness. That such mind states are not skillful. That we can be skillful by keeping our own happiness going. And if we look at them as moods, we can see their arising and vanishing, and 
recognize the fact that it is possible to arouse the a kind, a kind of mood which is skillful. Deliberately arouse it. And here the uh, insight injunction is to see mind as mind where we then abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world, um, which is a refrain of all of these insight uh, um, paragraphs. The um, seeing mind as mind is exactly the same as seeing breath as breath or body as body. There is a mind. But is there really an owner to it? And uh, why do we think that this, uh, there is an owner? Is it so personal? Is it so particular? Or is it the same as everybody else's? A meditator eventually does come to the conclusion that mind is mind, that everybody has the same kind of mind that the only difference is the degree of purification now that too is a very important insight um, meditation because that is the way one gets to know oneself and as we get to know ourselves and have insight into these moods that arise, we would also see that we have some that we like to hang on to. And it may be we may be able to substitute if they're not skillful. Now these are the first three of the four foundations, body, feeling, and mind states. And within the body we have four different ways of watching the body. With feelings we have one, with mind states we only have the one. Of course with all of them we have the arising and ceasing, and with all of them we have seeing them as non, as just objectively not belonging to us. And now we come to content of mind, and there, of course, we have a whole gamut of possibilities. And in order to use those possibilities, we've got to know them by heart. There's just no way out. We don't have to know the different channel grounds meditations by heart. We can have any kind of imagination about a dead body. But if we don't use, know these, uh, what I mentioned here, in this uh, sutta, when, if we don't know those content of mind by heart, we cannot use them. So many people, of course, who do not take this um, uh, practice to a great, uh, to great length, will just have to use content of mind as either uh, wholesome or unwholesome. Wholesome states, unwholesome states. Now, naturally, there is also a possibility one can use content of mind uh, in a little more focused way when it is wholesome that one recognizes that one is 
are loving and kind and compassionate and giving and all the rest of those um, patience one can recognize those or one can as recognize as unwholesome states irritation anxiety fear um, dislike and so forth unwholesome content the unwholesome content differs from state of mind by being more explicit and having a direction usually not always but usually usually there is anger at somebody and it's more explicit and there is um, um, patience with something and it is explicit this is a differentiation we can find from the mind state to the mind content the mind state is one which may be just um, hateful but when we come to the mind contact we will find the anger at a person in it as a differentiation no? so if we can't remember can you say that again right if we look at a mind state it may just be hateful right hateful mind state yes. but if we know the mind content we may find in it the anger at a certain person more explicit more directed right yes. and that would apply to all of these um, states now that is a way of using mind content wholesome unwholesome and then knowing exactly what the unwholesomeness is or what the wholesomeness is um, if one can't remember these specific instructions although for anyone who ever has the idea of teaching any of this or of actually coming to some sort of liberation one's got to know those these are the basics they've got to be known uh, if one just wants to improve one's uh, pure purification, it is sufficient to know when one is wholesome or unwholesome, be able to specify what the unwholesomeness is, and be able to substitute it with wholesomeness. That is enough for purification. It's not enough to gain access to a liberated state, because these things that are mentioned here are more detailed they have more specifics in them and we have to get to know ourselves in those specifics eventually so that we can get rid of the specifics you see when you say for instance or when I just say uh, okay that's an unwholesome state of mind it's not specific enough it isn't enough to actually know what is going on in the mind and only then is it possible to recognize how and um, in which manner to get rid of it because what is the opposite see the wholesome and unwholesome is much too general to make that um, enormous shift in oneself which is possible to make but it is sufficient for just ordinary practice it's certainly not sufficient for liberation nor is it sufficient for um, actually knowing the Buddha's teaching. So the first of these things are the five hindrances. Sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt, or the last one can be called uncertainty, which is also a very useful way of calling it. It's called Vichikicca in Pali, 
and uh, which is usually, frankly, a skeptical doubt, but there's no reason not to get away from those traditional translations which um, quite often do not um, hit the spot as much as some newer translations. So these are the five, and uh, we have discussed them now. Recognizing one or the other in oneself facilitates the substitution. Knowing exactly what it is makes it easier. And each one of them, of course, has its counterpart in wholesomeness. Sensual desire has its counterpart in equanimity. One-pointedness, which we get in the meditation. Ill will has the counterpart in loving-kindness. Sloth and torpor or lethargy and drowsiness, it's the same thing, has the counterpart in energy. Agitation and worry has the counterpart in being here now, being in this one moment. And uncertainty has a counterpart in confidence. So these five all have their opposites. So when we have find one of them, we can find their opposite. Essential desire, of course, is very often um, also a desire for getting rid of something. Now, for instance, well, it works both ways. When there's a pain in the leg, one, one would like to sit better and more comfortably to get rid of that pain. One doesn't wish any pain. One wishes to get rid of it. Well, it actually means the same thing, because instead of pain, one wishes a pleasant feeling. So it's essential desire for pleasant feeling. <coughs> Counterpart equanimity. Counterpart ill will, loving kindness, next one counterpart energy, then being in the here and now and confidence. Hmm? Now here we are enjoined by the Buddha to investigate how that particular hindrance has come about, how how we can get rid of it by substitution, as I've just said, sometimes by letting go, if we are able to, and how we can in the future avoid it, that particular hindrance, these three aspects. How did it come? How did I get rid of it? And how can I avoid it? Well, for essential desire, of course, the avoidance is to guard one's sense door. For ill will, the avoidance is to have more loving kindness. Self and torpor, the avoidance is also not to give in to it. So we have, um, when we contemplate the content of mind, we have a fair bit of work to do.
But that is the way of getting to know ourselves. And it's not a... It's not a... a methodology to do this. It's an actual delving into one's own inner being. Because this is where it's all happening within oneself. And as one sees oneself for what one is, one can change it. If one doesn't see oneself for what one is, one can't change it. Now, of course, it's difficult huh, to see oneself as one really is, particularly to see oneself as others see one. But as one becomes more and more mindful, it does have more and more um, possibilities. So we have the arising, the getting rid of, and the avoiding, and then again we have that the uh, contemplation and the uh, experience that they are just arising states, content of mind, which we do not have to own, which we can let vanish without interference without reaction and again when we see the arising and vanishing and our objective towards them we will have less uh, of that ego centeredness which is part of the uh, reaction um, syndrome that we all have the ego centeredness brings about the reaction So then we have, after we have the five hindrances, we have the five aggregates. Body and four parts of mind. Feeling, perception, mental formation, and sense consciousness. Now these five aggregates are a very particular meditation method and meditation possibility which we should um, at some time or another practice. And the practicing is of course um, concerned with the rising and vanishing of it but because it is very helpful to recognize that the ego, the me idea, arises out of those five aggregates. And that's why they are called the Pancha Upadana Khandas, the five aggregates of clinging. Upadana is clinging. And it is said over and over again that Nibbana means non-clinging. 
So the very interesting aspect of inside meditation is to observe any one of these five, particularly, of course, the mind states in meditation, the four different ones, feeling, perception, mental formation, sense consciousness, any one of them or all four of them, and eventually recognize that within those four, the me idea has arisen. That the me is embedded in the ownership of those. Naturally, that includes the body, the fifth one. That's a very um, incisive inside meditation method. And here it says we should see the, the origin, the disappearance, and um, of all these, so we can see how a feeling arises and how it disappears. We can see how perception arises and disappears, and so on. So we have inhindrances, and we have aggregates. Now we have six sense bases. Now with these six sense bases, I'll repeat that once more, that we need to see that we have <clears throat> an operating sense base such as the eye, E-Y-E. We have an eye object, and as the seeing consciousness arises because the eye meets the eye object, seeing ensues, but only the mind can make any kind of particular object out of it. The eye itself only sees, the ear only hears, but it's a mind which gives it the perception and then, following the perception, we also get a mental formation. So we have sense consciousness first, then we get the feeling, and after that we have the perception and then the mental formation. And the mental formation is our reaction. And that's how we live day in and day out. And we always consider the reaction, mine. In fact, it is nothing but the force of the five aggregates reacting to one of the six sense bases. Now, if we could see ourselves like that, we could see ourselves as a reactor to sense bases our senses. We wouldn't take anything so seriously. The whole thing would become much lighter and we would have no more worries because our reactions would be at our choices and not depending on them. We would no longer have the dependency. We would be able to choose a reaction. So this is a very important insight 
uh, inquiry in health meditation. Is this clear? contact uh, feeling as that is happening that we can't uh, do anything about perception we could stop if we wanted to we wouldn't have to say that is a train we could stay with the sound but we would get an unpleasant feeling from it most likely but it could be neutral but we could stop from we could be stopped from saying that is a train. But we can certainly stop ourselves from saying, I wish there weren't any trains here in Bandanuna, I could meditate much better and then go on to say, Well, how the hell could anybody meditate here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that we can certainly stop ourselves from. And when we do make choices like that, when the reaction becomes a choice, uh, we have become independent rather than dependent. If they choose to. So, Certainly. The Buddha are very often called as monks and non-fools. <laughs> In innumerable times. <laughs> and told them in no uncertain terms what they were doing wrong. And so if you choose to, yes, certainly you reacted to their nonsense. One time he left them, went into the forest for, for the rain retreat, didn't want to see anybody anymore because everybody was misbehaving. Don't ask. <laughs> Better not to know. <laughs> Well, it seems to be, because everything works so quickly that we think the whole thing happens all at once. And if we don't do this sort of inside meditation, try to take it apart bit by bit, we always see ourselves as one whole lump. And we sense contact and the perception and the feeling, all, it all follows each other so quickly. That's why also the reaction follows so quickly that we're usually caught unaware. And that's the mindfulness practice. Yes, it does appear like that, but it doesn't. It isn't really so. No, but that's why, that's why you can't feel the feeling so often. Because the perception has come before the feeling. Yes, because we are not um, mindful enough, not going, getting inside of ourselves enough to watch the steps. And that's why we're also reacting before we actually want to. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's a saying which people use sometimes, uh, uh, you know, they get angry at somebody and they say, well, you know, I'm sorry I got angry at you. I wasn't myself this morning. Who was I? should say I wasn't mindful this morning. That would make sense. You know, that's correct. But I wasn't myself this morning is how we say it because everything, we just, it's too quick for us to get in there and see it. That's the whole mindfulness practice. Um, the body, is that um, included in the sense contact? A touch. 
touch contact. Of the senses. That's the and sense trying to fit the body into that progression of happening. Yes. Well, the sense, the, uh, the six sense bases are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking. So touching is this. Of this. So the body is the sense base in that con contact, just as the eye is the sense base for the seeing, the ear for the hearing, then the rest of this body is the, the sense base for the touch contact, sometimes called tactile, I don't know what they're using here, yeah, uh, sounds, odors, flavors, tangibles, here it's called tangibles sometimes called tactile. I like to use touch, it seems simpler. You know. So we have we have you have the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind. These are all the sense bases. Anything else on that? But if you if you can change the reaction then you can also change the feeling in the end. Mm. Or will you start to, to feel differently? Perhaps. The uh, feeling which arises, these are either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, these are the three kinds, and they will always be there. Now, for instance, the Buddha was on his deathbed and he had terrible stomach pains, cramps. Well, it stands to reason that these were unpleasant feelings. You cannot have stomach cramps with pleasant feelings. However, the mind does not react to that. And he was, in spite of stomach cramps, which were bad enough to uh, cause his death, able to go into the eight jhanas and die between the fourth and the fifth. So the uh, unpleasant feeling is there, but the reaction isn't. And possibly not even the perception, although he did mention, he did mention that there was a, um, the body was having unpleasant feeling and pain in the stomach. So that does, yeah. is, is there, yeah? Well, I think what I actually mean is when the ego is diminished, then feeling and perception will be different. Well, then you are you talking about emotions? Mm. Okay, yes, because you see this unpleasant feeling that he was having is an unpleasant sensation, isn't it? Mm. That's not an emotion. The emotion, the emotions that an enlightened person has are strictly purified and they're only the four Brahma Viharas. They're only um, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. That's all that's left of emotion. So these are the purified emotions. But the unpleasant sensations, yes, they are still there, which are bodily, physical sensations. So with those emotions only left, one would assume that uh, it is quite easy not to have any, any unwholesome reaction. In fact, there isn't um, 
You see, when the Buddha was um, scolding monks and nuns and or calling them fools, which they undoubtedly were, because the stories are quite horrendous, um, it doesn't mean that he was um, inside of himself feeling any um, unpleasant reaction to that. He was just trying to teach them. And so there is, uh, the emotions are purified, yes, in an enlightened person. But the unpleasant sensations still remain. Does that answer the question? Well, I was actually talking about a worldling and not so much about a noble one. All right. Now you said, how would they change? What What do you mean? If the worldling well, for the world... If somebody calls you a stupid or whatever, and yeah. uh, you have a certain reaction to that, right. and say, starting reading to practice, change your reaction, sure. then I suppose if somebody calls you a fool or stupid again, mm. you, can, you don't feel it like that anymore. That's right. Um, it, that presupposes, however, that some um, a progress of insight has, a, has been made where there has been uh, some actual steps of letting go which are more than being a worldling. A worldling usually reacts or suppresses the reaction. So if there is a person that is lessening the reaction and you know the non-reaction is only um, possible for someone who is totally enlightened but if the lessening of the reaction comes from uh, understanding, from insight, it would probably have to go hand in hand, to be real, to go hand in hand with an actual step on the way. It certainly is a lessening of the ego as you don't react. And in the end, um, that kind of um, attack seems to sort of fall short of its target. I mean, the attack can be seen and heard, but it doesn't hit the target. Although oneself is a target, it doesn't hit, you know. So the, the person who is trying to, you know, throw the arrows never gets bullseye. Mm. Emotion of reaction. Really That's Yes, but that makes it difficult. You call them. You when you have a sense contact, you get one of three kinds of feelings: pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Not yet. They're going to be. <laughs> They become an emotion when the perception then says pain. And then the mind says, I can't stand this. I'm going to get out of here. That's your reaction, right? 
or when there's a pleasant feeling and the perception says wonderful and the mind says I'm going to get more of that I'm going to spend my last penny but I'm going to get more of that so it becomes an emotion as soon as a pleasant feeling has turned then after it has been named that isn't karmic yet has turned into a desire then it's a desiring emotion or an angry one so it takes apparently some time but actually what happens it's so quick that we have great difficulty getting in there and the best way of trying to get in there is by well obviously by mindfulness by watching oneself but also by arousing more and more equanimity through the tranquility meditation and arousing more and more equanimity through loving kindness meditation where that equanimity gives one the space to watch what's going on because until one has that bit of equanimity as a as spaciousness in the mind everything works so fast you there's no time to even see what's happening the reaction is there before one has even known that there has been a feeling either a purified one or an impure one and when it's a but as long as there's a me in there the reaction makes karma that's where we make karma that's why mental formation is also called karma formation that's where the karma is made Uh, yes, but many, 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 many different ones in the emotions. Anger, upset, pride, envy, jealousy, desire, greed, lust, uh, craving. Oh, a gamut takes the Oxford Dictionary. <laughs> Anything you find. <laughs> but you can, yes, you can put wholesome or unwholesome, but that's not good enough for practice. Because it's, uh, you know, it's not pinpointing it enough. We really need to get in there and pinpoint it. Okay? Sense spaces. Adyatana, six sense spaces. Then we have the seven enlightenment factors. Well, now we don't need to think that, well, yes, I'll leave that for later when I get enlightened. Uh, that's not exactly what it's all about. These are factors which all of us have and which we need to cultivate and develop so that they become enlightenment factors. At this point in time, they are um, faculties, for, uh, uh, abilities, which need uh, cultivation, care, so that they become strong enough. Huh? And out of those seven, if we can look at them and re see them, we have the first one, which is the investigation factor, which is the insight-producing factor. Now, this is the one that we need when we really investigate into these um, different insight methods which we have now discussed. 
And when we see ourselves really investigating, we know the investigating factor in our mind has arisen. And that's very helpful and very useful. And um, as I said before, I'll just repeat that now. Sometimes the mind just doesn't wish to become calm. And whatever one does just angers the mind even more. It doesn't want to listen. Now, there are times as like that. This is a time to investigate anything. Whatever one feels is important to investigate. There are moments when the energy is low. Now, energy is the next one of the factors here. Um, sometimes it is possible to arouse it. Other times one might have to give in to it. We are usually more on the giving in to it side. So careful with that one. Better to arouse it. The investigation factor arouses energy. Because when we investigate and we see something new, the joy of seeing it arouses energy. So if the energy is low, that's not the time for tranquility meditation. That's the time for investigation, for insight meditation. And then we have, well, the very first one is mindfulness, of course. I didn't mention that especially out of the seven because we are concerned with mindfulness. What it actually amounts to is also knowing when we're mindful and knowing when we're not mindful. And then the other four, the last four, are all concerned with the four absorptions, the four jhanas. And when we do practice those, we will know through the recapitulation, which I have told you about, at the end of the jhana, what we have done. We must have the understood experience. And then the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. Well, the Four Noble Truths, the first two, are really important to see in oneself. The desire and the cause of it. When we have the desire that there is, sorry, the result of it, not the cause of it, the result of it, which is Dukkha. So the desire, which is the second noble truth, which produces the first noble truth. And then the fourth one, which is the noble eightfold path, which we have um, really discussed at great length, and which one should know by heart. It is not mentioned here, is it? But if you want it, um, there are many other places where it is mentioned and uh, if you haven't written it down yet it's divided into three parts first one is wisdom which consists of right view and right intention and second one is the um, morality part right speech right action right livelihood and the third one is the concentration part, which consists of right, mind, right effort, right mindfulness, 
right concentration. Those are the eight factors. As you can see, mindfulness is everywhere to be found. It's that getting in touch with oneself. Getting in touch with what's happening. So we have an enormous array of inside meditation methods which are mentioned here and which concern the four different bases, body, feeling, mind state and mind content, always concerned also with arising and vanishing, the impermanence, and also the non-ownership, seeing it objectively, also seeing it outside of oneself, being the same as within, to lose its separation. With the body we have the movement as a mindfulness exercise, we have the body parts and the elements and the dead body, four different bodies, inside meditations, feelings as feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, mind states, and then mind content. Mind content, five hindrances, five aggregates, Six sense spaces, seven enlightenment factors, four noble truths, noble eightfold path. That can occupy us till the end of this life. Um. <laughs> Enough to do. <laughs> so, any anything that needs questioning or discussing or elaborating on, it's. I thought it would be useful to just go over it like this once more, but the actual knowledge of it only arises when one does it. One only knows what the mango tastes like when one has bitten into it. There's no way to substitute for the experience. You've got to get to know what it means to be mindful of our mind content. One of the things that everybody is prone to do, every human being is prone to do, justify the mind content when it's unwholesome or when it's foggy. Totally unnecessary because the mind state at that time or mind content is again then justification. Totally unnecessary. All we have to do is know it. We don't have to justify. Yes. Now one of the counterparts of the five aggregates, <coughs> excuse me, uh, was confidence. Sorry, five hindrances. Five hindrances. One, one of the sorry counterparts was uh, confidence. Bearing in mind the, the danger of the ego, what could be said about guarding against from confidence the ego arising? The ego doesn't have to arise, the ego is there. It's already there, but the question is about if there is confidence that tends to engender, engender ego, how could one guard against that? Without confidence, the ego is just as strong. It hasn't got any lessening because there's no confidence. The, the lack of confidence produces 
a lack of certainty to practice properly. It doesn't, the lack of confidence does not produce a lack of ego. No, no. But it may produce um, a worldly person that doesn't want to promote themselves in the same way as a so-called egotistical person. Sorry, I didn't catch the last bit. Well, I can't even... I didn't quite catch it. Mm. <laughs> um, if we looked at, the, say, the character or caricature of a, a salesman who's very um, egotistical, yes. promoting himself all the time, lots of confidence, um, one would imagine that, that was producing um, a fair amount of mm. possibly bad karma. It's going to take a while to get out of that. It's that kind of confidence that I would Well, promoting oneself is not not based on confidence. Promoting oneself is based on lack of confidence. Yeah. Anybody who's got confidence doesn't have to promote himself. Yeah. And this confidence is not concerned with that particularly. It's particularly concerned with the confidence in the teaching, confidence in the teacher, the Buddha, and also in the confidence that one is able to follow that teaching. That's what it's all about, yes. It's not so much the confidence of one's own knowing. It's more the confidence of that one is able to do this properly. Because sometimes people actually do think, and that's not uncommon. It all sounds much too difficult. I'm just not able to do this. And that's then the uncertainty, the lack of confidence arising, and which stops one from practicing. I remember distinctly when I first started meditating, which was in 1963, and I was told to stay on the breath, and I thought, yeah, yeah, well, of course, you know, so what? I mean, it can't be very difficult, so I'll just watch the breath. And I found out I couldn't do it, and I tried and tried and tried all over again, and I couldn't do it. I did come to the conclusion that this sort of thing was just not for me. And uh, I would have been extremely helpful if somebody had told me something about confidence. It was sheer willpower and uh, probably um, a wish not to give in that made me stay with it. So um, it's confidence also in the, the giving one the feeling of, yes, it's all right, I, I'll do that. Because uncertainty concerns the, um, yes, one's own ability and also the teaching, the uncertainty about the teaching, which very often um, induces people to go what we call guru hopping. They go from one to the other, hoping that somebody's going to do it for them. And uh, that is also based on that uncertainty, which way to follow, going to different teachers. Mm. Do you think that the lack of self-esteem produces more superiority feeling just to balance it? Yes, yes, very often. Yes, lack of self-esteem self -esteem produces uh, this kind of uh, trying to
show that one really is somebody because one doesn't believe in oneself. <laughs> yes, it's a, an unfortunate. It's um, it's this inferiority complex which is just as bad as the superiority complex. It's all based on a uh, inflated ego um, illusion. The less ego illusion there is, when it's less, you know, it comes less, the less of those problems arise. That's why the confidence in one's own ability is very important. Anything else? Yes. Why did the Buddha choose to go out the train with I have no idea. It doesn't say. <laughs> <laughs> It is specific. Ma Mughalana, who was his left-hand disciple, was psychic and uh, was able to tell the other monks that that's what the Buddha was doing. It is totally specific. It says so in the canon. And if we can believe the teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta, we can also uh, believe the teaching in the Ma uh, uh, Nibbana Sutta, and that's where this is mentioned. I mean, we can't just pick and choose, you know, this is what it says there and this is what it says here. And so it is very specific that the Maha Mughalana said this. And uh, my um, assumption is, but I cannot tell you this for, for a fact because it isn't said so, it doesn't say so. Uh, my assumption is that the um, place uh, he chose to die was between the fine material and immaterial because the uh, body goes, you know, it's a material aspect and the mind is the immaterial aspect and both are involved in this death. But that's only an assumption. I really can't, don't know. Is there anything in the teaching about the approach of death and the use of the children? Uh, in, in the Theravadan teaching there's very little about death teaching. You find far more death teachings in the Tibetan tradition. We have very little about death. This is the only one, actually, that I know that... Oh, no, there's a... No, no, that's not true. There's a, a sutta about Anathapindika when he was dying. And uh, it's also very interesting because on his deathbed he learned for the first time uh, about the higher teaching and uh, actually became a stream mentor on his deathbed. because he, you, know, you have to let go. But there are not such specific teachings about what happens after death as you find in the Tibetan tradition. Tibetan Book of the Dead is very specific. But the Theravada tradition doesn't have that. So the Buddha didn't buy anything you know, specific about that? What to do at death? Yeah, like no. no, but seeing that he did that, it seems to be the right thing to follow. Yeah. Since that was his way of dying, it seems like a nice thing to do. Anything else? Yeah, something a little different. Uh, I um, feel the, the loving kindness feeling in my heart, but as it is 
part of mind. Why don't I feel it in, in my big toe or something? <laughs> well, in your big toe you feel sensation, but not emotion. Yes, but why is that? Because mind, it's, it's right here, it's right there. Um, mind, no, the Buddha, the word shitta can denote both. It can denote mind and heart. So everything that's happening in the mind is happening in the heart. And that's not the physical heart. That's the spiritual heart. And it's often said, not by the Buddha, but it's often said that the spiritual heart sits right here. And uh, this is where we do feel emotion. So all that, the four parts that we say are in the mind, we can say those four parts are in the heart. The same thing. There's no difference. The Buddha does not differentiate between the two. We do, and it's much easier to talk about it in English when we differentiate between the two, but he doesn't. So everything that you feel, you feel in the heart which is the word chitta in Pali. And you can feel in the mind, which is the word chitta. Same thing. But the, the emotional aspect is usually felt here. But in the body itself, it's sensation. So emotion is heart or mind, or mind-heart or half-mind. And since it's abstract, it's not, you can't touch it, it's hard to say the point, but we really, well, we do, one does feel it here. This is the point where one actually does feel it. And it can actually go, go bigger. And if you can make that feeling of loving kindness um, expand and uh, get bigger and bigger, it can actually cover your whole body. But it will not specifically arise in the big toe. It won't do that, but it can spread. It would seem possible to direct that uh, loving kindness to parts of the body should be needed. Mm-hmm. Sure. You can do that. Then you can. It, you will, you, it will most likely arise from this area yeah. and then you direct it. Yeah. That can be done. Just like you can do it from here to another body. Yes. Somebody else's body. You can do it to your own. Sure. Even the big toe didn't bring it. <laughs> 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 it is, um, um, quite possible to extend it, to enlarge it so much that you can feel it very strongly everywhere. But you don't feel it so much as um, that the, you wouldn't think of it that the body feels it. You would still think of it as being part of that emotion, you know, even though it has extended, which is fine. It has to become unlimited. As the Buddha explained, it becomes unlimited. So it has no limits. So then eventually it goes to the big toe too, I suppose. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
never considered that question before. <laughs> All right. So we have actually um, finished with this um, sutta.